Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Our summer of abdominal angst continues this week. We've been working through that core abdominal pain differential diagnosis. This is like the most important differential that you need to know, and so we've really been taking our time with this. And so far, we've covered four critical diagnoses, the quadrant-based diagnoses, basically, appendicitis, diverticulitis, all of the biliary stuff, and pancreatitis. And so this week, we are moving on. We're moving on to our intra-abdominal bowel emergencies. This is a core concept that you need to hang on to this week. Not all abdominal pain is related to a specific quadrant. And I know, I know, I know you love quadrantness. Everyone always gets the appendicitis and the diverticulitis in their differential for some reason, but it's time to step up your differential game because average medical students, they think in quadrants. Um, but even if you were to exclude all of the non- GI abdominal causes of abdominal pain, you'd still would have this large list of intra-abdominal causes of abdominal pain that aren't related to a specific quadrant and that you guys forget. So our next four diagnoses, we're going to go through these. I'm going to call them the bowelies, bowel-related causes of abdominal pain. Hello, Dr. Olson. I have a 60-year-old male with a history of appendectomy, cholecystectomy, gunshot wound to the abdomen, atrial fibrillation, and diabetes who presents with abdominal pain. He describes it as a continuous, gradually worsening, generalized abdominal pain that has been getting worse over the last 12 hours. He has been having multiple episodes of vomiting, but no fevers, chills, diarrhea, or urinary symptoms. He does endorse feeling constipated today. He is afebrile, and his vital signs are all within normal limits. On exam, he has a benign abdomen, minimal nonspecific tenderness, with no rebound, guarding, or rigidity. Sure, it may just be constipation, but we need to rule out the life threats of mesenteric ischemia, small bowel obstruction, MI, and diverticulitis. For my testing plan, I want to get a CBC, a BMP, LFTs, lipase, troponin, lactic acid, EKG, and a CT scan of his abdomen with IV contrast. And for my treatment plan, I would like to get him 4 milligrams of IV Zofran and 4 milligrams of IV morphine. And let's keep him NPO for now. All right, let's go. So first life threat this week, mesenteric ischemia, ischemic bowel disease. I have looked for this diagnosis a lot. I haven't seen it very much so far in my years of residency and my first year of attending hood, to be honest. I've seen just a few cases. This is going to be a, more on your uncommon diagnoses type list. Probably not going to belong on, you know, every one of your differentials or that sort of thing because it's really more specific situations where you get concerned about this. But it is out there and it is bad. It's a 50% mortality or worse. So you don't want to miss this. It's just not very common. 
So you have all of this blood supply going to the bowels. And so you've learned this in anatomy. You got the celiac trunk, and that's going to the stomach and the duodenum. You got the SMA, the superior mesenteric artery. That's getting basically the rest of your small bowel and the first part of your colon. And then you have the inferior mesenteric artery that's getting the rest of the colon and the rectum. And the classic teaching is that you can get ischemia or ischemic bowel disease, ischemia to the bowel for a few reasons. So you can get arterial emboli that blocks off blood flow completely. So that's why atrial fibrillation is just like a classic abdominal pain red flag. Probably like the most quintessential abdominal pain red flag is a patient with atrial fibrillation. Another one that would fall in this category is like aortic dissection, right? So if you dissect off that arterial blood flow to the celiac SMA or IMA, that could cause ischemia to the bowel or ischemic bowel disease, but it's from an issue with the aorta. People that are hypercoagulable, they can actually get venous outflow obstruction. So the you get the embolic kind of blocking off the arterial inflow to the bowel, but you can also get ischemic bowel disease when the outflow is blocked from thrombosis. And um, so that's a lot of patients who have like maybe hypercoagulable states, that type of thing. And then um, you can also get ischemic bowel just from lack of blood flow to the gut for whatever reason, people with bad CHF, people with sepsis, all of your shocks, right? Like anyone who is in shock for whatever reason, the gut and the, the bowels can be damaged from poor blood flow. That's still ischemic bowel disease. And some people, they can just get chronic narrowing and hardening of those arteries, just like, you know, you get coronary hardened arteries and you get angina. Um, they more or less get angina type pain when they exercise their gut and when they eat. And so that's ischemic bowel disease. Those are your kind of classic causes that get taught. The real question is, what does ischemic bowel disease look like? What does mesenteric ischemia look like? So on history, atrial fibrillation is really your biggest red flag for this. Um, this causes embolic mesenteric ischemia and the most classic kind of situation where people are going to complain about when you're talking to them is severe, horrible abdominal pain. Um, another thing that you'll see is people that complain of pain that worsens when they're eating or postprandial pain. Some of these patients have such bad postprandial symptoms that they will actually refuse to eat and they start losing weight. And so severe pain, possibly, you know, in the setting of atrial fibrillation, maybe, you know, another thing would possibly be like a clotting disorder or that type of thing that is very prandial in nature, so much so that the patient starts losing weight. That's your classic history. Now, obviously, it's not always like this. This is a trickier diagnosis, but almost all patients with this, they are going to have this severe pain. Um, frequently, they will have atrial fibrillation. Frequently, they're going to have that those, those postprandial, that abdominal angina while they eat. Um, but nothing else is really too specific on the history. Exam, the this is kind of the key phrase um, here, the kind of the pathognomonic finding with mesenteric ischemia, right? You guys might know what it is. And I will say it's actually much harder to pick up in real life than on like an exam where they mention this. But the key finding is pain out of proportion. So the patient is like moaning, oh, 10 out of 10 pain, but their abdomen is really benign. 
pain out of proportion is, is the key classic exam finding that you need to know with ischemic bowel, mesenteric ischemia. I will only point out one thing here is that like in the real world, this is really tricky because everyone, if you were, this would be an interesting study. If you just took everyone in triage who had a painful complaint and you saw, let's say, just do a study and see how many of them report their symptoms as nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, um, everyone who has abdominal pain is reporting 10 out of 10 abdominal pain. Pretty much everyone reports that. They could have like a stomach bug and it's just the horrible cramping, right? And so one of the primary ways as an attending, you kind of get used to start sorting through this. All, you know, you have all of these 10 out of 10ers coming at you is by doing good, reassuring abdominal exams. You're doing thorough abdominal exams. You can't just scan everybody that has 10 out of 10 abdominal pain. That would be insane. So the the issue though with mesenteric ischemia is that their abdominal exam is going to be reassuring when usually a reassuring abdominal exam reassures you that you might not have to do imaging. Um, but that is, again, the exact exam that you would expect with ischemic bowel. Horrible pain, benign abdomen. That's your exam. Now let's move on to our testing plan. So let's say you have at least, let's say you have a, a low-ish but not zero suspicion for this. According to my source book that I'm using for this episode, Emergency Medicine in a Page, Jason Katerina from Ohio State wrote it, elevated lactic acid, according to this book, is 100% sensitive for mesenteric ischemia. And that is higher than I guess I've heard before. And I think that you always need to be careful whenever a test is, quote, like 100% sensitive because there's like nothing in life that, you know, it's always the perfect test. But lactic acid is a very good solid test to screen for mesenteric ischemia that you can put in your testing plan if you have mesenteric ischemia kind of on your differential. The big issue though, when you put lactic acid on your testing plan to, you know, consider maybe testing for mesenteric ischemia is A, if you are, you know, super concerned for mesenteric ischemia and you want a more definitive test than just, you know, a blood sample. The other thing to be careful about here is that a lactic acid, and you'll see this because I get a lot of them, but a lactic acid goes up for lots and lots and tons and tons of reasons. Frequently, I send people with an elevated lactic acid home. It's not a very specific test, especially statistically when you're dealing with a very uncommon diagnosis. You're going to get a lot of false positives if you're just using a lactic as your screen for this. What do you do and, you know, what's kind of your next step? A, again, if you just want to jump to the definitive test, or B, if that lactic acid comes back positive. Now, you can, so we're going to talk about that here. You can get a CT scan, abdomen and pelvis, with IV contrast. And that's how most of these are going to get caught. You might not even be thinking mesenteric ischemia, but you're going to get a CT of the abdomen and pelvis, and it's going to talk about some mesenteric thickening, or, you know, it'll, it'll say something. You'll be like, mesentery, mesenteric ischemia. I need to think about mesenteric ischemia. It'll kind of, you'll, you'll make the connection. But so, yeah, I have seen ischemic bowel show up on just a, a CT with IV contrast. If you are specifically getting the abdominal CT for mesenteric ischemia, it's probably better to get what's called a CTA, a CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis. Um, remember, angiograms are where they time that contrast bolus. They don't just let it kind of settle. They don't just let it kind of settle through and kind of light up all the blood vessels. They're timing it for specific blood vessels. So we do CTA, CTAs of the of the chest when we're looking for a pulmonary embolism, for example, and you're looking at the you're lighting up specifically those pulmonary arteries. 
So a CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis is going to allow the radiologist to get a really good look at the blood flow to the bowel. So you won't just get a read that says, you know, oh, some nonspecific bowel wall thickening, but it'll say you have a 50% occlusion of the SMA with good collateral flow or something, right? A CTA specifically of the mesenteric blood vessels. That's your definitive test. And you can get this. I've, or, you know, I frequently get these, not every day, but, you know, at least once a week, probably. But that's kind of the spectrum that you're you're thinking of as far as your testing plan if mesenteric ischemia is on your differential. Uh, lactic acid, a CT scan with IV contrast, a CTA of the abdomen and pelvis. That's your specific ED testing for ischemia of the bowel, mesenteric ischemia. And then the last part of this, again, is treatment plan. So let's say you get that, you know, it's probably like a once a year type diagnosis, mesenteric ischemia, and you get it during your rotation, right? Like some of you will, obviously, and they pick it up on the CT or, or whatever, and you catch it. What do you do next? The tendon is going to be like, well, how do you want to treat it? What's your plan? And so just to kind of round things out here, patients with mesenteric ischemia are sick. Remember, you're talking upwards of 50% mortality. So fluids are going to, you know, any sort of resuscitation is generally going to be the types of things that you're doing. You're giving them fluids because that's going to help improve your perfusion. You're going to be giving antibiotics because that ischemic gut is going to start to lose its barrier function from all of the bacteria and stuff in your poop, and it can start to get into the bowel wall. And so you want to give them antibiotics because they're losing that barrier function. And then for definitive management, you need a consult. So your surgeons are going to get involved. And forgive me, I haven't actually seen too, too many of these, but you know, I haven't had every possible scenario of how these can go, but surgeons are generally going to be the ones getting involved and kind of taking the reins of the case. If that bowel is really just necrotic and dead and there's air in it and that type of situation and they do an X lab and they cut it out. But what if, you know, you can get some of that blood flow back and you catch this really early before the bowel dies. And there's a few options here. And I'm, again, I'm not going to pretend in any way that I'm the expert on this, but they will sometimes attempt like arterial thrombolytics I've read about. Um, there's a medicine that you may learn about called papaverin, and it's basically a vasodilator. And sometimes that gets given to try to improve blood flow. Sometimes these patients get started on a blood thinner. Sometimes they go to interventional radiology and they get something like, you know, or get like an angioplasty and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm the expert here. What you need to know is that for your treatment plan of mesenteric ischemia, you're giving antibiotics, you're giving fluids, and you're getting consultants on board to figure out how to fix this. Do we just need to take out bowel and it's dead, or can we try to restore flow? And that wraps up everything you need to know as a med student about mesenteric ischemia, atrial fibrillation, hypercoagulable people, severe Prandial pain that is out of proportion to your exam, lactic acid, CT, CTA, fluids, antibiotics consult. Okay. Uh, we'll do one more this week. Small bowel obstruction also needs to go on your differential diagnosis. And this one you will see quite a bit. There's two categories of small bowel obstructions. There's mechanical small bowel obstructions and sort of more of the, the ileus metabolic type, I guess you could call it. And so, you know, this is the pimp question, right? I have to do the pimp question. What is the most common cause of mechanical small bowel obstruction? What is the most common cause of small bowel obstruction?
it's adhesions, okay? People with lots of abdominal surgeries, people that have had gunshot wounds into the abdomen, that type of thing. Adhesions are your most common cause. Uh, hernias, tumors, other big ones. But keep in mind that not everything that obstructs the small bowel is a mechanical obstruction. So don't forget about ileus stuff. So electrolyte abnormalities can cause ileus, recent surgeries. Obviously, you've seen this on your surgery rotation, waiting for everyone to pass gas, right? Um, people who are chronically on opiates will get this. Uh, having a recent trauma can kind of stun things and cause an ileus. And you're, you're basically decreasing that bowel motility and getting a small bowel obstruction type picture. And the question you're probably thinking is, well, is a bowel obstruction that's even just like the ileus type, is that, are they all bad? And sometimes it's really bad and sometimes it's not. It's just, it's a spectrum. So sometimes, yes, it's bad. And what can happen is if the bowel dilates enough, just like as an appendix dilates or a gallbladder dilates, you start to lose blood flow and get some edema in that wall. And you start to get inflammation and you start to get ischemia. And so with bowel specifically, you can, you know, whenever you're getting ischemia of the bowel wall, this time it's not caused by decreased blood flow from like, you know, an occlusion of the SMA. It's caused by that increased pressure, decreasing blood flow into the, bo the bowel wall. You start to lose your barrier function again. Poop can start to get across the barrier, you know, the bacteria can, um, just like with ischemic bowel. And so you can, you need to keep things from getting to this point similar to with the mesenteric ischemia. There's a big spectrum between, you know, bowel that's under, under pressure and needs some help and bowel that's dead. So let's kind of, let's back up and just go through our history exam, testing plan, treatment plan. So in bowel obstructions, the history of someone with an a bowel obstruction, what they're going to be complaining of, again, is severe, crampy type pain. Frequently, they have lots of vomiting. Uh, the vomiting is frequently described as bilious. And there's not a lot coming out the back end. So they're constipated. They have decreased Platus. So patients definitely come in with this type of complaint and, um, you know, this people with severe abdominal pain that's cramping and they're vomiting. Uh, this is one that you can, you can put on your differential more than you might think where I think you really start to focus down and get worried about this diagnosis specifically is going to be on your physical exam. And so what you're going to see, it's going to be very, very tender and it's going to be, they're going to have a distended abdomen. And I, I need you to, to pay attention here because this is a key point for a bowel obstruction exam, okay? So you're going to see the tenderness. You're going to see the distension. What you're looking for, though, is peritoneal signs. There's a big, big, big difference who's got some distension and some pain and some ileus, you know, because they're on chronic pain medicine and the CT says, oh, maybe there's a little obstruction or ileus. And there's a big difference between that and somebody who is guarding with rebound pain, especially after pain medicine has been given and you kind of have improved the quality of your exam because now their pain's under better control. So this specific part of your exam, the, the peritoneal signs, is how you want to lead your presentation or, or put it early in your presentation when you're talking with your surgery consultant when you're consulting them for this possible bowel, bowel obstruction.
you want to let them know if they have an acute abdomen or not. Because though it's rare, and most of these obstructions are just ileus type stuff, and the CT says, oh, maybe a small bowel obstruction, possibly, like you get these hedged reeds. Um, it, a bowel obstruction when they are peritoneal is is very bad. The obstruction has basically gotten so bad and the bowel's gotten so distended that it's starting to cause inflammation and potentially ischemia of, of the bowel wall, which is not good. Now, uh, let's wrap up with our testing plan and we'll be almost done. I think that classically um, for a testing plan, and this was something that I saw done when I was at Ohio State as a med student. Um, I had an attending that had me do this. But a lot of people will have you try to diagnose small bowel obstructions with an abdominal x-ray. And um, I would say that I rarely do that now especially with how easy it is to get a CT and how much better of a test it is. You are never going to be wrong on your clerkship if you're, I, I don't think, you know, I suppose some attendings can do some things kind of, you know, in different ways. But if you truly have small bowel obstruction on your differential, I don't think you're going to get in trouble to say, I want to get a CT scan with IV contrast. One th another thing to consider is that emergency departments, we don't really do the oral, the, uh, the PO contrast anymore. Although, you know, you could, you could see why this would potentially be helpful, right? Looking how that oral contrast kind of works its way through the inside of the bowel. The issue is, and the reason that you don't see this done is that it takes so freaking long for that contrast to get to that right spot that pretty much no emergency medicine doctors are going to really order it. Because what's going to happen is it dis delays your disposition. It delays your diagnosis. You're talking by hours. You're talking four, five hours, just by the time it all kind of gets done. And then frequently the, the contrast didn't get to the right spot anyways. You almost will never see CTs with oral contrast being ordered out of the emergency department anymore. It just takes too long. And so we rarely do it. But you do see people kind of bypassing the abdominal x-ray and getting a CT scan with IV contrast. And, um, that's kind of like your, your main test. The other thing that you will frequently get is a lactic acid. And again, the, you know, it's just like with mesenteric ischemia. This is to screen for ischemia secondary to the obstruction. So it's a nice little extra piece of information to have. If you have someone who has a small bowel obstruction and their lactic acid comes back way, way high and, you know, your abdominal exam is kind of concerning, like that goes in your presentation to the surgeon. You say, hey, I'm worried that this is a really bad small, small bowel obstruction. Um, they may be getting some ischemia with it. So when I'll give you an example of kind of how I would present this to the surgeon. Um, and if there's a surgeon out there listening, I'd be, I'd be curious to get your feedback on my presentations to you. I always want to make them better. But this is how I would do it. I'd say, hey, this is Dr. Olson down in the ED. Bed 17 is a likely small bowel obstruction that I saw on CT. Exam is benign right now. No peritoneal signs. White count is 13. The lactic acid is normal. I don't think they're ischemic, but would you please consult on the next step of management? Done. And usually they'll say, oh, yeah, we'll send the residents or whoever you're talking to. That's kind of how I say it on the phone. Let's wrap up here with the treatment plan. So fluids, pain medicine, antiemetics, plus or minus antibiotics. You know, if it's a severe obstruction, again, if it's so severe that you're getting ischemia of that bowel wall and you think you might be losing that barrier function, you might give some antibiotics. If it's a complete obvious obstruction, 
Like it is a full blown. This is a, this appears to be a mechanical small bowel obstruction on the CT scan. Um, frequently these patients go, you know, pretty quickly to surgery. You'll consult surgery. If it's this kind of BS ileus type stuff, a lot of times they just kind of get observed overnight. Still usually with the surgery consult, that's kind of your core treatment plan. The other big question though, that you're going to get, you know, then there's a lot of them with small bowel obstructions, you know, whether or not you should be giving PL contrast. I feel like whether or not to do an abdominal x-ray is one that maybe is controversial. The other one is whether or not to place an NG tube. And so really the way you need to think about this is that it's a, it's a symptom control type thing. It's, you know, if the patient is having just horrible, horrible vomiting and just epigastric pain and distension and they're just in miserable, um, a lot of times I'll put in, I'll order an NG tube. The issue is that lots of these patients also really suffer having NG tubes put in. And I've never had one put in me myself. Maybe I should try that sometime. Um, maybe one of you can practice on me or something and you can see what it's like. But they definitely look uncomfortable. I will say that I think the NG tubes probably right now, you know, it used to be like all small bowel obstructions got an NG tube. And now it's like all of the emergency medicine people are like, you put an NG tube, you're like a torture person. You're just the worst of the worst. And I think that's probably a little too extreme. Um, you know, I've seen this on YouTube. People will put in NG tubes, no issue at all. They, they do it, you know, they every day, like these people are just really good at putting them in. They know how to do it. So they have that advantage. But I would say NG tube is kind of a plus or minus. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I don't, but it's really for that symptomatic benefit of decompressing the stomach. And if that's going to outweigh the discomfort of putting that thing in, I imagine that you'll have attendings of all of you out there that kind of go both ways on this and then have a wide variety of opinions on NG tubes. But I just needed to touch on that, obviously. That's bowel obstruction, uh, severe, crampy abdominal pain with vomiting, uh, frequently constipation. They're on exam. They're tender. They're distended. Hopefully, they're not having any peritoneal signs with it, although they might. Um, frequently, I'll get a lactic acid in addition to the CBC that you already put in most of your abdominal pain plans. And you can, I guess, some people may have you just try to get away with an x-ray, but almost always your test of choice is going to be a CT with IV contrast, uh, PO contrast. It's not that it's like going to make the test worse. It's going to make your test maybe a little bit better, but it takes, it quite, quite frankly, it just takes too long to be practical anymore. And then you're going to treat with fluids, antiemetics, pain medicine, plus or minus an NG, you know, plus or minus antibiotics, consult surgery. That's small bowel obstruction. And that's a wrap with kind of our, our deep dive, our summer of abdominal angst this week. I, you know, I know that you guys were so excited to start all of this abdominal pain content. And now you're like, I'm so sick of abdominal pain stuff, but you need to know these. And we need to specifically go in depth on these because these are specific diagnoses that are on your med for CDEM curriculum that your clerkship directors want you to know. And so I want to cover these and just at least briefly overview them, even if it's not the most interesting of, you know, episodes. Remember a key takeaway. This is just a it's something you need to remember. Only a very small part of your abdominal pain differential diagnosis and what CDEM wants you to know is going to be quadrant-based diagnoses, gallbladder, appendix, stuff like that. Lots of stuff can happen to the bowel, uh, the bowel itself, and there's lots of lots and lots of non-GI things as well. You have all of the genital urinary things that we're going to be covering at some point, and then all of the kind of the more referred pain and metabolic type stuff. So it's not all 
you don't limit your differential to quadrant-based diagnoses. That's a mistake. So we're going to keep rolling next week. I hope you are finding this content helpful. Um, I care about you. Good luck on your clerkships. Until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift. <laughs>